very few things that are worth having are you know, come easy. Correct. Uh, unlike, unlike, other than lottery wins, I guess. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the meat but, lottery. It's uh, like a pub lottery. quiz. Correct. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Fine Food Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This time, uh, we've moved away from cheese and we've moved into the wonderful world of charcuterie. I'm speaking to Drew Baker, former MasterChef winner in 2010 and now half of Tempus Foods with Tom Whitaker, who was a runner-up in 2011 on MasterChef. This is all totally coincidental, it turns out. They, in fact, uh, got to know each other working together in a professional kitchen and discovered a shared passion for charcuterie and creating uh, a delicious and, and innovative product. I was lucky enough to go down to Tempest Foods in, in, a, in a faceless industrial unit in southwest London and had a really interesting uh, chat with Drew, ranging from meat through to veganism through to social responsibility. Um, Tempest Foods is one to watch out for. Enjoy. I'm Drew Baker, one half of Tempest Foods, um, along with Tom Whitaker, and we are standing in our in our production unit here in, in sunny, glorious Weybridge, um, talking about all things meat and charcuterie. I suppose what I want to start with is something that's happened really recently in the last couple of days, is you announced, was it yesterday? Correct, yes. Uh, that, that you'll actually be supplying to Selfridges. Yes. Which for a company that, that's less than a year old yeah. is is a massive step forward and I suppose what I want to do is go how do how have we got to this this stage um, sorry I'm grinning because I to hear somebody else saying it kind of drives at home I haven't actually thought about it and one of Tom and my biggest faults is that we never allow ourselves to celebrate the, the wins it's always going right how next what next what next and you know we do we push hard because we we want this to be a success and so Yes, we are delighted to be in Selfridges, you know, one of the, one of the greatest food halls in the world. Yes, a very good question, um, one I ask myself kind of re- repeatedly, but I think it's down to the kind of meticulous approach that we've taken to charcuterie. Um, you know, at the, the very starting point, I think we can say safely that in Britain we have some of the best farmers and some of the best meat on earth. That, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, and so the logical progression is that we should therefore be able to produce some of the best charcuterie on earth. And I think it's a, it's a historical thing. When I talk about charcuterie, I mean the sort of air-dried format, which is kind of more is synonymous with the continent. Um, here in the UK, we didn't have that much of a heritage of air-drying. I think it was possibly down to the climate. You know, it's a much more damp. Um, yes, there are a couple of examples that exist, but our cured meats tended to be sort of hams and bacons and you know, a different format. So I think we are now emulating some of the processes that have been done in the continent. And, and they, they've been doing, done, I guess, in the last 15 years. It, it started, and there are companies who've been going 15 years who are making excellent British charcuterie. And it, it, there's always been a bit of a mixed bag, as with any sector and any category. There are some great, some less great. Um, and we wanted to sort of be a part of this industry. It's something that Tom and I adore. He trained in Italy over a number of years. Um, so it has a, a really fastidious kind of classic approach to it where there's no compromise on the fundamentals and I think that's where certain businesses might fall down because it's a case of let's start thinking about weird and wonderful flavors and flavor profiles and wackiness and and actually without really paying as much care and attention that needs to go into the the basic fundamentals Mm -hmm. animal selection age of the animal size of the animal fat cover um, length of cure type of cure length of aging you know all of these things and we spend a lot of time you know years developing our skills 
in those fundamentals before we started even looking at flavour profiles and, and spice cures to go into things. And a lot of time, uh, from my understanding, in, in, in finding the right producers of the actual meat, of the animal, like, yeah. you, you know, you've you know you've gone for age there's there's a real kind of push that the idea of the age is good mm. you know we're not looking for a quick fix you know yeah. as you said actually just now you know tempus temp, you know tempus charcuterie it's all about the idea of time yeah. what is it about the age of of the pig that you're you're choosing yeah. that gives it that flavor that, that you want so there's a number of number of elements so i mean let's put aside for one reason the kind of social the responsible and the ethical side of a of uh, older animals and let's look at the actual characteristics that make them so good mm. um predominantly when you're looking at pork charcuterie, it's the, the fat, the way the fat behaves. So if you look at the back fat on a pig, a young animal, sort of six, seven months old, 60, 70 kilos, it's quite a thin cover of fat. But the texture and the consistency of fat isn't great. It's quite pudgy. It, it's not got that beautiful kind of marbly, glossy, snow-white texture mm. which you get from older animals. And actually, the fat gets denser and more kind of compact and more solid. And you imagine a piece of larder which has got that... It's just a thing of beauty. You've got that gloss and that sheen and that density, which you just cannot get from a young mm. animal. So that's on the fat side. The uh, And obviously, you know, fat means flavor and all that. A lot of the flavor is, is kept in that. And also the fat, when you eat it, sort of melts in your mouth. It covers your palate. It carries all of those flavors. The meat itself, an animal that's worked, that's older, has worked harder. The muscles have done more. You know, it's a tougher meat, yes, but through the aging and the curing process, that's broken down. Um, and you just need to look at the animal, the, the color of the meat. You know, people look at it and they, they think it's beef, some of it. It's this incredibly deep, rich color. Because we had a quick a quick look around and actually, it's, it's almost burgundy. It's Absolutely. It's a deep, deep red color. There's no um, pink in there, really. No, there's not. And, you know, when I think of thought about pork, and generally people's experience of pork tends to be from supermarkets, and generally what comes out is something of the sort of color of, of, of chicken. Incredibly pale, and the fat and the skin all seems to be quite quite kind of soft and textureless. But actually, you know, the skin we're getting, it, it's, it's tough, it's thick, and it's got this big layer of fat underneath it and then underneath that as you kind of cut through it it reveals this incredibly deep rich mm. as you said sort of burgundy colored flesh and the meat so it's the flavor it's the visual aspect it's that texture um, all of those come with the with the and that's just we're just talking about the raw meat before we've even done anything with it and you know that before we ever cure anything we'll taste the meat you, you know you mm. look at it raw you you cook it to see what it tastes like when it's cooked it gives you an idea of how it'll cure but ultimately you're taking leap of faith because it goes into its room into its aging chamber and then we just hope that in six to 18 months time what comes out is mm. is glorious and your your background is is i mean tom's obviously trained you know in the world of charcuterie your background is as a chef um, yeah well i mean that's the beauty tom I guess in a funny way, we both came at this in, through the same route, which we, you know, it's not mentioned in any of the literature, but we met through MasterChef. I won it in 2010, and Tom was the runner-up in 2011, and we both went into chefing. Mm -hmm. um, Tom always had this, he lived in Italy as well for a number of years, but he had this, this deep-set passion for, for meat and butchery and, and then charcuterie. And we used to share a kitchen, completely by coincidence, a few years ago, and you know, I'd be making canapes for some event somewhere which was mind-numbingly dull, and he'd be there butchering a 150-kilo pig, which was way more exciting. <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. And he kind of one day said, you know, you, you're good with spices. Come up with some flavor profiles for these. Mm. And that's just how it began. And so on weekends, we'd, we'd buy a pig. We'd get a farmer from Cornwall who'd bring us up a, a beautiful, big, fat pig, and we'd spend all weekend making charcuterie. And, and the kind of word got out, and friends and family were kind of pretty positive about the whole thing. And as more people got wind of it, more people tasted it, increasingly people saying, you guys should consider doing this, you know, properly. We thought about it long and hard, and I kind of said to Tom, I had a restaurant at the time, 
if I do this, I mean, we need to do it properly. And mm -hmm. he agreed. And we said, so we're going to have to raise quite a lot of money, build you know, the facility. Um, yeah, and we've just had a little tour around this, what, three, four temperature-controlled units? Yeah, four. Packing area. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a full-on. It's one of these wonderful faceless industrial units Correct. on the outskirts of London, which houses amazing producers, distributors. You know, you just wouldn't know unless you get in there. It's, it, it's, it's you know, that's the beauty of it. When people turn up, invariably, almost bar none, the general initial response is shock. I think they expect that Tom and I would be in a in a shed with one pig hanging in it and yeah. kind of um, you know hand mincing yeah. a bit of pig and, and a couple of salamis hanging wistfully transported in the a Tuscan barn to uh, yeah, South exactly. West so what we've had to do is actually emulate a Tuscan hillside with the, the kind of bricks and mortar and, and tin facade of a of a Surrey industrial estate. Um, so while it doesn't have the romance by any stretch of that kind of bucolic. Tuscan image. It's um, it, we've replicated the conditions, and that's the thing. You know, the conditions are, are essential to this. You know, we 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 took us six months for the aging room to settle to get uh, the uniformity of humidity that we wanted to get the airflow right to get the molds to colonize. We didn't use any shop bought molds. We wanted to develop our own. So actually, right. theoretically, there shouldn't be. A so it's got its own unique biome. I mean, in many ways, yeah. similar to the world of maturing cheese. Yep. You know, you're going to arm of their maturing cheddar and it's you know it's native essentially it is it's exactly that and you know we we uh, tom more than i was adamant that we didn't use a shop-bought mold you know you get the consistency sure visually and flavor wise but he said that's not about that we want this to have our own identity so in the same way that the recipes are written for them we'll hopefully when people eat it we'll recognize it as a tempest product and you want to incorporate that i guess the equivalent of a sonic logo but a taste logo without mm -hmm. sounding like a like an idiot, this kind of horrible marketeer chat. I'm going to let you talk, Drew, if it's fine. Uh, yeah, do. just hang yourself on that one. <laughs> no, I, but I, I, do I know exactly what you mean, absolutely. <laughs> you want it to be an identifiable, unique product, you know. Uh, so listeners will know that my, you know, my background is in cheese, and you know, you know, it's a Montgomery's cheddar. You 100%. know, it's a Quicks cheddar. They're both cheddars, but they're so different. The flavour profiles are so unique, yes. and, and you know, you know, when you're it's, eating it's, a it's actually product. a real joy to talk to a cheesemaker because. 80% of what I'm talking about is a kind of syntax that's understood. Mm. Um, but you're right, you know, Montgomery cheddar is unmistakably a Montgomery cheddar. We take a lot of inspiration from the cheese market to see what the British cheese producers and the industry as a whole has done over mm. the last couple of decades. We are kind of very much at the start of that journey as, a, as an industry. Um, and I think if we, we should take as much learning as possible from the cheese world, you know, what British cheese stands for internationally and domestically, of course, um, is incredible and there's no reason same with the sparkling wine market you mm. know for years people would laugh about sparkling wine go oh, well it's never going to be champagne well actually they're beating champagne now in a number of areas mm. so I don't see why there's no reason we can't do exactly the same thing and that's what we're doing we've kind of set our stall out to be as 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 good as we can be. I think we've had a good start. You know, we're not even to a, a year in yet and having won Best Producer in the UK at the British Charcuterie Awards at, at Country File um, was, it was a, a really promising start. And mm. I think if we can do that in the first year, um, you know, we're in Selfridges now, we're very much at the start of where we want to be. Mm. Um, I think this is uh, a good first step, but mm. we are nowhere near where I want Tempest to go. And of course, there are lots of steps before that first step. So I'm, I suppose I'm interested as well in, in you personally. You, obviously, yeah. the MasterChef win in 2010 was, a, was you know, it is a big deal for anybody who wins that, yeah. that, organ, that, that competition. But uh, food before then for you, yes. was that a more a personal passion or are we talking, 
your, your sort of professional world? No, absolutely not. I mean, before 2010, my food has always been a, a massive... I know the word passion is thrown around, so I'm not even going to use it. Um, I, I was, uh, and even obsessed is, is banded around. But, you know, my I worked in, in marketing, and I had done for a number of years, and I was a sales director of a relatively successful company. But I had absolutely no satisfaction that came out of it other than financial. Um, and I would spend all week thinking about who's coming around for lunch or supper on the weekend and what I was going to cook. And I would spend days thinking about it and cooking, and I still do. Mm. Um, and I, it's lovely to now be in this industry because it's surrounded by people who are generally crackers um, and, I, and, and rabidly passionate about what they do. Mm. And I think you have to be to, to put in the kind of hours that people do in the food world, whether they're producers or chefs or, or sellers, or, you know, whatever. You think about people who wake up to go and work in markets at four mm. o'clock mm. every morning and don't think anything of it. Um, and it's just what we do, and we do it because we we absolutely love it. And I've always, I'd always kind of been on the the outside of the food food world, wishing, you know, my pipe dream was how do you get into it? And generally, there's not that much knowledge about the jobs available. So you'd mm. think, oh, a chef, a chefing's got to be the route in. And then Master Chef came along, and it kind of enabled me to to enter that world. But it was, I think, you have to have that kind of obsession um, and that blind faith in what you do. And and every so often, something will come along and and validate that obsession and then it kind of you, you know you'll have 10 bad days or 10 bad weeks and just when you start thinking is this right mm. is this something will there'll be a flicker of hope or somebody will taste it and go that's incredible and then you forget all yeah. of those you know it's like having a child 10 sleepless nights you sleep for two hours on the 11th night and you think it's marvelous <laughs> yeah. in the world of so in the world of charcuterie we've talked a lot about the, the provenance the age uh, the meat itself and then the spice cures and things like that. As a, as a as a man with a you know obviously a creative mind, yeah, and uh, you know who's a chef as well, yeah. How easy is it for you? There must be a, a temptation to kind of uh, to to go mad, to to try lots of different things. Do you ever have to rein that impulse in, or is it are you more focused on a kind of defined quality, if you like? Um, it's a kind of weird th- thing for me because I kind of start with I know exactly what I want that product to taste like. So in my mind, I know what it's going to taste like. Mm. And then I can understand the building blocks that need to be put in place to work towards that. So if I'm cooking a dish, before I've even cooked it, I kind of know what it'll taste like at the end because I know what elements need to go into yeah. it. Charcuterie is different because you then got to leave it at 12 months and factor in the effect of mold mm-hmm. and the aging and the intensification. Because obviously you're losing water loss, so the concentration of spices increases. So you've kind of got to... It's like mm. tasting wine... Yeah. yeah, 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 knowing that in 20 years' time this would have been a good investment. Sort Absolutely, of thing. and I wish I could do that with wine. Mm. Um, I can't, but luckily I can do it with, with what we're doing. So I kind of think, right, I, this is the copper uh, from the collar. It's a, a very meaty, full of flavour, sort of cut of meat that's full of flavour. Therefore, I can be a bit more bold with the flavour mix without overpowering it. The, okay. the loin, much more delicate, a sweeter cut, less sort of robust, and therefore I need to be a bit more restrained and a bit more delicate and a bit more gentle with it. And then that's kind of way, because we understand the inherent qualities or intrinsic qualities of each of these products. Mm-hmm. That kind of gives me the range I can work within. Because the last thing I want to do is overpower any of the meat. We spent so long selecting the meat. The farmers have spent so long rearing these incredible yeah. animals to then obliterate it with, you know, su- uh, Surrey's hottest salami. Right. It's kind of counterproductive. And we could have used anything. You know, fill it with lots of paprika and chili and, and make it a bit of a gimmick. And mm. I get really upset when I see products like that because it, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back, exactly the same with cheese. Absolutely. You know, without naming any names, when you see stuff that's, you know, stuffed full of apricots and seems to fly off the shelves at Christmas, mm. um, it's exactly the same. They're kind of novelty joke products. But that's an interesting point, actually. So 
yeah, as a cheesemonger, I get asked a lot for, you know, X, Y, and Z infused yeah. lemon rind and port, something or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, each customer comes through the door and you have to treat them, you know, with a level of respect. There's always an overwhelming urge to try and educate and, and pull them yeah. into a different world of cheese. The reality is, though, is that those products sell incredibly well. We want to work within parameters of a, of a quality, it's a personal, mm. um, very much subjective mm. quality range. Mm. Um, it will be to the t liking for a lot of people, it won't be to other people. And actually what I want to do with our products, I'd much rather somebody loved it or hated it than was indifferent about it. Yeah. And actually in a tasting the other, way, the other day, somebody said, yeah, it's pretty bland. None of your products taste very much. Um, and you know your initial reaction is to get your back up a bit, and then you think actually, you know, if somebody has been brought up eating a very different style of charcuterie, which is a kind of mass-produced, sort of much more salty, much more flavoured, yeah. as in artificially flavoured, then I get what they're talking about, and they're mm. they're coming at it from a different perspective. There is a degree of education if people want it, but I'm certainly not going to dictate you should be eating this. If somebody kind of says, I love the idea of charcuterie, but I've only ever had that processed stuff from the supermarket, mm. I really want to learn more. Mm then that's amazing, that kind of makes my year. And they okay. taste and their eyes kind of widen and they say, I've never tried anything like this. But other people are quite happy with what they're doing and it's the same with cheese, it's the same for wine. Some people aren't interested in food, you know, they eat it as a fuel, mm. but that's their choice entirely, you know, no one can dictate that. I mean, I know people who literally see food as fuel and take no pleasure in it. Mm. Um, and then we're at the other end of the spectrum and you just hope that we find the people who think the same way as us. And, and the beauty about food is that there is that spectrum that will cater to everyone. Yes. And as long as you're talking to the people who are interested, I'm not going to go and tub thump and be all evangelical about it. I like talking to people who are interested in it, but I'm certainly not going to try and force it down anyone's throat. But but I suppose what's interesting is that you are supporting, you know, smaller producers, you are, you know, paying an appropriate price for your meat. Yeah. You are, you know, so I think I think there are a lot of positives. I'm not talking so much about, you know, people should all be eating high-end charcuterie but yeah. I think the food industry as a whole should be a more supportive of smaller producers because yeah. because actually the the positives are have a have a positive knock-on if you like I, I agree and I think what's happens you know going if you look at the last 10 years as a kind of cycle that there was this thing of getting you know making meat much more accessible and much more kind of egalitarian and much more available but what that didn't mean was by default driving the price down and the only way of doing that was by sacrificing quality and making it quicker to come to market. And I think we've come that full circle where people have said, okay, we get it. There are people who will buy within that model, but we want more from it and mm. we demand more from it. And therefore we want ask, we're going to ask more questions of our producers and we want to eat less meat, but we want to eat better meat. But, but yeah, and I think that's very much an underpinning kind of foundation of what Tom and I do is that we want it to be socially responsible and actually show that there is this enormous wealth of resource available, veal, male kids from the goat's milk market, sows, dairy cattle. This, mm. These are incredible animals, and we sometimes sort of denigrate them as this waste product mm. as a society, but actually we've been spending a lot of time doing it. We're dry-aging dairy beef for up to 80 days in, in a short chamber, and the end results are they beg a belief. So that's the only beef I'll now eat, because it's so good. It's so good. It, I mean, my, my wife, actually, the first time she had a bite of it, had this overwhelming emotional response and actually had tears streaming down her face. And Amazing. she kind of couldn't believe what was going on. Um, and this is a product that we've kind of brushed aside because it takes too long. And then you think, well, who, who can be bothered? And actually, you know, we can be bothered. And that's the entirety of what we do, which is why Tempest was this, it was like Kismet. We were thinking about all these names and things. And then one day, 
we just it just clicked and it's like about time um and it is about time we mm. started thinking about these things more realistically and more responsibly and not because we're trying to be all um you know high horsey about it obviously that's an element of it we want that responsibility but ultimately the product is better yeah, than fun. anything available this is the thing I think obviously we're talking around sort of various sort of social responsibility and yeah. you know dealing with waste and all this you know these things are very important but the thing that seems to be at the very bottom of everything yeah. is that when you put it in your mouth it's delicious and it delights you and, and that's it it, it has yeah. to be you know people are only going to be virtuous so far mm -hmm. You know, it's like years ago when the health food became a thing in the kind of 80s and 90s and you saw people struggling through bowls of what tastes like chipboard. And they go, <laughs> yeah. oh, but it's really good for me. Mm. Um, and actually at the sacrifice of the flavour, but actually our side of point is people, that if it's delicious, people come at it because it's delicious. Right. Or people come at it because it's socially responsible and happens to be delicious, but ultimately it has to be delicious. Yeah. And I think that's the same with even a lot of vegan food where people were kind of eating what was terrible but now there's vegan stuff which is outrageously good yeah. and it's it's delicious food that happens to be vegan yeah it's not vegan food and eat it because it's vegan you know you're defining somebody by their lifestyle choice mm. which i think is the wrong way to go about it you start with the end result and track back absolutely and i think that yeah i think it's, we, we will talk about veganism in, in a yeah. world of meat here but I, I think it's really interesting that rise and, and i've spoken to other producers about this is it's you know, non-vegan producers, cheese and, and, and meat and everything, is it is almost a symptom and reflective of people's interest in, in food, what they're putting into mm. themselves, where it comes from, you know, and all of that breeds a level of social consciousness. But if it tastes like chipboard, nobody cares. Yeah, So absolutely. you've got people like, I guess, like Anna Jones is, is the obvious yeah, example yeah. with her brilliant cookbook. And, you know, that, that three days a week of no meat. It's, yeah. you don't, it's not something that you're making a conscious decision to do mm. because, you know, you need to look after your heart or whatever. It's, it, it's just because, well, let's have that delicious dish again. Yeah, and I think we are all saying the same thing. Mm. It's albeit from a different angle, a different perspective. If you think of somebody purely carnivorous at one end and vegan at the other end, it's a scale, and actually you can overlay the responsibility scale on that. And then it kind of folds in it on itself when you've got meat eaters sitting alongside vegans yeah. as far as the responsibility goes. So meat's not going to, and meat and animal protein is not going to go away overnight. Mm. Stopping eating animal protein is not going to save all the woes in the world. Being much more socially responsible about the type of animal and fish, uh, animal protein generally we eat, will go a long way towards that. And actually I was having this conversation with my son who's 10 and he read somewhere that there was deforestation on a huge scale in order to produce beef that goes into a certain chain which make burgers. And he read that and he immediately said, I'm not eating from burgers from that place. He also said he wanted to be a vegetarian the other day because he didn't like the way animals are treated, having read something about it. And I explained to him that there were animals that have wonderful lives and they're treated completely differently. So now he will eat responsibly and ethically reared meat which is this is the future and if our kids yeah. are saying that then there's hope yet yeah you know he knows where animal com where meat comes from you know kids some kids think it's a cellophane wrap thing and you say that comes from an animal they burst into tears mm. um he is already having this inner dialogue which is if it's treated well and has a a, a rich life than something living in a crate mm. then i'm happy to eat it i've had a vegan come and visit us here starting point was you know you disgusting flesh peddler. And how, so how did that how come about? How, did they knock on the door or? No, well, it's somebody I know through kind of social media and I've met them at various food events mm -hmm. and they were intrigued and wanted to come and have a look at it. And, you know, they look around with a kind of degree of, it's a cross between kind of curiosity and, and disgust is a bit harsh, but, but she's open-minded enough to, to do that, which is great. Mm. 
And um, actually, when you delve into it and you say that a lot of what we're using is a byproduct from other sectors of the meat market, meat industry, then it changes their perception massively. Mm. Um, if we're using something that would have either ended up in a bonfire or in, in to pet food, mm. and we're using that to create what is a luxury product worthy of gracing the shelves of Selfridges mm. and winning sort of national awards, I think that's exactly the approach we should be taking, and that's exactly how we're going to build this business mm. um, long term. It's using all of those assets and resources that, that for some reason are dictated as or deemed to be a waste product, and we see value in it, um, immense value in it, not just because of the social side of it, but as we've already covered off, the flavor is and the quality is, is well in excess of the majority of stuff that's produced commercially. Um, yes, it's harder to make, and yes, it's longer to come to market, and yes, it'll end up becoming perversely more expensive because of what's involved, but actually, the quality of what comes out at the other end, I have no qualms mm. paying for that myself, and I have no qualms knowing that there's enough people who will buy that product. I'll draw with that kind of in the farming world. As if you think about Kelly Bronze turkeys, you know, when they started out, the Kelly family started out buying up these bronze turkeys. Everyone said they were mad because the market didn't want them. They wanted the white feather stubs. They didn't like the black feather uh, hair follicle, sorry, feather stubs on the birds. They were not very pleasing aesthetically. And, and they stuck to it. And actually, an animal that takes longer to grow and it's, it's probably more expensive to rear and, and it had the negative, perceived negative attribute of the black mm. feathers. And, and they stuck with it and they held their ground. And actually, now they are uh, considered the best body turkeys on the market. Mm. I know it's not the same, but it is the same. It's having that, that kind of that focus and that sticking to your belief and that passion about thinking what you're doing is right. Mm. And I think a lot of people would cave and fold early on and actually holding that line when you know you're right uh, is very difficult. We've mm. had a really difficult year. Um, and I think we've got another difficult year or two coming ahead. I think it'll always be difficult, but I'm hoping less and less difficult. Very few things that are worth having are... You know, come easy. Correct. Unlike, <laughs> unlike, other than lottery wins, I guess. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the meat but, lottery. It's uh, like the a meat pub lottery. quiz. Correct. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I just think it's more of the same from us. Continue developing our range. Continue looking at areas of the market where we believe there is value and quality, um, and just kind of continuing in the same vein of what we're doing. I, I think it's been a good year. We've learned a lot. I think we're better equipped now to go forward with what we're doing. But it's you know we learn every day. Of course. And if we don't, then you know the day we stop learning is the day that the business will start going downhill. Right. Um, but yes, it's certainly been an exciting year. Um, it's been a tiring year. I'm looking forward to a break. Yeah. Uh, but very much looking forward to next year and super excited about the uh, opportunities that we've got. Great. Well, look, thank you, Drew. That's My really pleasure. Fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much. Cheers. So thanks to Drew Baker there of Tempest Foods. Really great to meet him, great to chat. Uh, really passionate guy, knows his stuff, makes a delicious product. Next time, it's a bit of a Christmas special. I can promise sleigh bells. See you then. The Fine Food Podcast is produced by Salomon and Michael Bain of Fine Food Digest. It's edited and presented by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about the Guild of Fine Food, go to gff.co.uk and check out Salomon Sam on Twitter and Instagram.